Well, it's one week before Christmas, and uh, some of you may be expecting a Christmas message. I'm sorry to disappoint you this morning. We have been in a uh, really profound and rich section in the book of Romans, and hopefully it has captured your heart and mind the way it has uh, my own. And uh, I feel just compelled as I go through each section to almost uh, look ahead at what is next because I just want to see the way Paul unfolds all of this. So no Christmas message, but we are going to talk about trees and branches, if that's any consolation to you, because it's uh, at the center of the metaphor that dominates what Paul has to say to us in Romans chapter 11, verses 13 through 24, and it comes in a section where Paul takes dead aim at you and at me who are Gentiles, the specifically addressed group in this section. And he writes there in verse uh, 13, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus to save some, some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the, uh, among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant against the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This uh, section is really bound together by the fact that it addresses you and I very specifically. And he's not necessarily introducing anything new that he hasn't already told us in this section, but he... We might say he's drawing out the implications of what he's already said. He's helping us understand how we ought to respond to the truths that he's already given to us. Specifically, the implications as it relates to our attitudes in God's plan of salvation, or even our attitudes toward the Jews. Paul was a Jew. He understood what negative attitudes toward Jews were like. He understood anti-Semitism as we call it. He grew up in a largely Jewish city of Tarshish. He would have experienced the ridicule 
and the, uh, the spite that came from Gentiles and every place where Jews were, they were treated as objects of contempt and hatred by surrounding Jewish populations. People resented their sense of exclusivity, that they wouldn't integrate with the culture around them, that they wouldn't eat the same foods, they wouldn't worship the same gods, they wouldn't even have kind of casual table fellowship with Gentiles. They considered it to be defiling. So they resented that Jews held so tightly to their own religious beliefs, to their own diet, to their own language, to their own social circles. And as a result, they were treated contemptuously. Rejection all around. And the last thing Paul wanted to see was for the church to adopt this kind of sinful attitude. It's been the very unfortunate fact that in much of our church history, that has been the case. The church, more often than not, has been plagued by an anti-Semitic hatred. It has boiled over, certainly in the early days of the church, into animosity. In the worst ways, it has been cataloged in the Crusades, even, in the hatred of the Jews. It has, been, it has been employed as a tool by governments through the years to further their own agenda, this hatred of the Jews. And Paul doesn't want that. He doesn't want to, to foster that at all. And he certainly understands that that's a possibility because he himself has been repeatedly pointing out the blindness and even the pride of Israel within their religious zeal. They were blinded. They didn't know God. They rejected him, although he had held out his hands to them, to them all day long. And consequently, God had hardened their hearts, he says. It was a judicial hardening, a judicial blinding, as we have seen. This is what Paul said back in Verses 7 and 8, God had hardened their hearts, blinded their eyes, gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now you need to understand what he says when he's saying that. The Israel that he's talking about is the Israel that down to that very moment of writing the book of Romans is still in this spiritual stupor. It's vital that you understand what he's discussing here. He's not discussing the remnant. He's not talking about the elect within Israel. This isn't a discussion about how individual Israelites are responding to the gospel. This entire section is really aimed not at those who are elect, not at what we call the remnant, but the group that Paul says was hardened. He, he's discussing them. The ones mentioned there in verse 7. If you don't realize that, if you don't read that, then really all that Paul has to say in the remainder of the chapter doesn't make much sense. It doesn't make much sense to grapple with the various tenses, present tense and future tense and all of those things. And more importantly, it doesn't make sense why Paul is speaking in these corporate terms. 
Because he's dealing here with corporate entities. Just like he says in verses 11 and 12, he's talking about not individual Gentiles, but Gentiles collectively. In the same way, he's talking about Jews, not individually, but collectively. And the collective group that he's talking about are the ones who down to the present day are still hardened. They're still in the stupor. In fact, if this was really all just about individuals, then none of the questions even make sense. Why would anyone anyone be asking questions about whether or not Israel has fallen? They would have just concluded that, no, the few elect Jews are responding, and that's evidence enough that God is saving Israel. Paul's dealing not with those few elect Jews. He's dealing with the hardened Jews. He's dealing with unbelieving Israel. He's dealing with the Jews who have been and still are haters of God. Enemies of the gospel, as he says later in the chapter. And he's been emphasizing throughout this chapter that this position that they're in This hardening that they have is the result of God's work. It isn't just them. They have been hardened by God. They have been given a spiritual stupor by God. I mean, that's what he says right there in verses 7 and 8. God gave them this spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. Not only that, but as we've been seeing, this state of Israel has been predicted ahead of time throughout the Old Testament. More importantly, it is a key part of God's overall plan. It isn't an afterthought. This is exactly the way He wanted it to unfold. First of all, is a key part of his plan for salvation to reach the Gentiles because through the rejection of the nation of Israel, they would see God's blessing turning to the Gentiles. But just as importantly, by the salvation of the Gentiles, Paul tells us that God is stirring up jealousy within the Jews and then ultimately bringing them to salvation through it. That's the full circle of his plan. Salvation of the Gentiles, in other words, is a part of, or we might say subordinate to, the overall plan of redemption for the Jews. The plan to save the Gentiles is only happening as a part of God's bigger plan to save the Jews. By using the salvation of the Gentiles to stir them up to jealousy. And Paul asks then in verse 11 whether they have fallen out of God's program, whether they have stumbled so as to fall. His emphatic answer is no. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. This is exactly what we saw. You remember last week, Deuteronomy 32 prophesied it. Paul quoted it back in chapter 10, verse 19. They have made me jealous with what is no God. That is, Israel has made God jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger 
with a foolish nation. See, there's a plan that God had in place for Israel. The bigger plan, the grander plan, was to bring them to salvation, but He was going to do it by stirring them to jealousy through the Gentile nations. So, while there might have been a small remnant of Jews who believed in Paul's day, just like there is in our own day, Paul says the rest were hardened. And this partial hardening is not the end. There is coming a day of fullness. A day of full inclusion. When Israel is stirred up to jealousy and they all believe just as God said they would. And he's concerned in all of this that you and I not overlook that big plan. That you and I might somehow conclude that as God is doing extraordinary work among the Gentiles and He's not doing that among the Jews, that we might conclude wrongly that God has just replaced Israel in His overall plan with the Gentiles. That somehow He set that plan aside or never intended that plan to begin with. And so to combat that, Paul takes these truths and shows how they should affect our view of Israel. And by recognizing God's plan for Israel and God's plan to use the Gentiles within that, Paul shows us the kind of attitudes, really, that these doctrines should generate. Humility, fear, joy, hope, expectation, all of those things. We could break it down, I think, really into key uh, uh, four key attitudes that we ought to have in light of God's plan for using the Gentiles to save the nation of Israel. Four key attitudes that we should have in light of God's plan using the Gentiles to save Israel. And he connects it, we might say, to four features of this overall plan. The first one, we could say, is joy at the anticipated culmination of the plan. We ought to have joy at the anticipated culmination. When Paul says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. He's not, he's not denying that God has given him a special calling to the Gentiles. He's not denying that God is doing a special work in the Gentiles right now. But they shouldn't conclude from that that he was somehow giving up on his own people. That Paul was giving up on his own people. As a Jew, he's already said twice that his heart breaks, that he, he could wish himself accursed for the sake of his countrymen, his fellow Jews. He certainly has not given up on them. In fact, he wants to magnify. He wants to increase. He wants to make more prominent his ministry to the Gentiles because he understands it has a dual purpose. It has a direct and an indirect purpose. The direct purpose, of course, is the salvation of as many Gentiles as he could reach. But the indirect purpose is the salvation of the nation of Israel. He wants to draw attention to what God is doing among the Gentiles. Why? He says, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and to save some of them. I want to talk about it. I want to proclaim it. I want to shout it from the rooftops. I want to publicize my ministry. I want to tell every Jew that I can what God is doing among the Gentiles. Why is that? Because I want to provoke them. 
I want them to think. I want them to ponder what's happening here. And he wants the Gentiles to understand this. That his ministry as an, uh, as a, an overall ministry, it has an aim, an ultimate aim that extends beyond its immediate aim. The immediate aim, of course, involves the preaching of the gospel to Gentiles, but the ultimate aim involves the restoration of Israel. And it involves even more than that, as he says in verse 15, for if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? He's speaking about Israel here as unaccepting. Or you might say as unaccepted. We're not sure whether he has reference here to their acceptance of God or God's acceptance of them. But one way or the other, as Paul writes, they're in a state of unacceptance, of rejection, as he says. And Paul's contrasting these two phases of God's plan for Israel, their rejection and their acceptance. In the first phase, he says God has hardened most of the Jews. There's a partial hardening, although there is awaiting a fullness someday. But right now, Israel is hardened. But God is using that partial hardening. He's using it to turn the gospel to the nations, bringing about salvation for the Gentiles. Another way to say that, what Paul's really getting at here, is the reason for the salvation of the Gentiles is because of the partial hardening of Israel. Let that sink in for just a moment. The reason for your salvation, the reason for the salvation of the Gentiles is because of the partial hardening of the Jews. That's a part of God's plan. Our salvation has a purpose, and that purpose is to provoke a hardened Israel to jealousy. And so the first half, their rejection means a reconciliation of the world, as Paul has already pointed out. Their rejection means that God's phase of His plan of stirring up belief among the Gentiles is active. But there's a second phase of the plan, a phase that hasn't yet happened, and Paul speaks about it in the future tense. What will their acceptance be? He uses the present tense to talk about their current state. What does their rejection mean? And then he uses the future tense to speak about their, their, their coming state, what their acceptance will mean. And he's obviously contrasting These two states, not talking about the remnant. The remnant isn't rejecting God right now. They aren't rejecting Christ. But the rest of Israel, hardened Israel, is. They're rejecting Christ, but that won't always be the case. There will come a time when Israel that is rejecting will be accepting. And he follows this with a promise. A benefit. Very, very similar to what he said in verse 12. How much more will their full inclusion mean? Uh, suggesting that there's, there's going to be some sort of increase of blessing whenever this inclusion happens. 
He left that how much more undefined in verse 12. He just said, look, this how much more just sort of left it, if you might say, to our own understanding, maybe even our own imagination. But here he spells out exactly what the future benefits will be. It is, as he says, life from the dead. What does that mean, life from the dead? Well, whatever it means... It can't mean the same thing as Israel's acceptance. Because their acceptance is what triggers it. It, it can't metaphorically mean spiritual renewal for Israel. It can't really metaphorically mean spiritual renewal for the Gentiles. Because Paul already said in the first half of the verse that that's already happening. So it must mean something else. And it seems obvious that this means something that happens subsequently after Israel accepts Christ. And what happens after Israel accepts Christ? The resurrection. Technically the second resurrection, but Paul's not parsing the details like he does in other passages here. He's looking at the big picture. He's taking joy at the prospect of what Israel's restoration means to the world. And Israel's restoration is a sign of the end. It's a signal, we might say, of the final return of Christ, of the resurrection of glorified saints, the resurrection from the dead. And Paul is excited about that. He wants that. He's ready for that day when gloom and darkness are wiped away and death is ultimately defeated. And so he says, look, for that reason, I exalt my ministry. I want my ministry to have its dual purpose. I, I make it prominent. I draw attention to it in the eyes of every Jew because it might provoke them to jealousy. And if they're provoked to jealousy, they might believe. And if they might believe, then the resurrection will come. It might trigger the end. And to drive home that point, he gives us a couple metaphors to explain why he's so confident in all of this. They're metaphors that explain how Paul is so confident of the ending. And it's because he knows the beginning. He wants us to know you can tell the result of something by its source. And so he gives us these two metaphors to say that Israel's ending, its final result, is already guaranteed by its beginning. The first one, of course, is that of first fruits, there in verse 16. The first fruits. It comes out of a religious ceremony about dough, uh, the prepar- preparation of dough in Israel's history. They were to present at the first of every harvest season when they harvested their wheat and they made their dough, they were supposed to take, Numbers 15 says, the first of their dough as a contribution to the Lord. And they weren't taking a a portion of what they have and giving it to the Lord so that they could keep the rest for themselves. If that is your idea of stewardship, you're woefully mistaken. They were giving the first fruits of what they have as a demonstration that God owns all of it. You do realize that about what you have, hopefully. You come each week or each month or whatever it is and you put something in the offering plate 
Not because you're divvying up things between you and God. You are putting that there as a demonstration that you understand that everything you have comes from God. And so Israel coming and giving the, 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 the dough, the first fruits, was just simply demonstrating that all the other dough, all the other lump, all the rest of their wheat was God's. It was all set apart. It was all consecrated to Him. This was the whole idea behind first fruits in the Old Testament. God allowed them to use His gifts by His grace, but He wanted the first fruits as an indication that the rest belonged to Him. And so Paul's suggesting here that the first fruits of Israel point to the fact that God has made His claim on the rest. And in this case, the first fruits refers to the patriarchs. Paul doesn't spell it out here. He doesn't give us that right in the middle of the metaphor. But if you will see down in verse 28, when he's again speaking or connecting Israel's ultimate restoration to an initial reason, what does he say it is? The initial reason is their forefathers, the promises made to their forefathers. That is why God is going to restore them. That is the original source of it all. He says it over and over again throughout the Old Testament. When Israel is rescued, when they experience His mercy, He reminds them why they are receiving this. Why? Because God had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, regarding the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but regarding election, they're beloved for the sake of the forefathers. This is why Paul has hope. This is why he has expectation that the final fruit will be one of genuine belief. It's because God set apart the first fruits as holy. Not that they're, you know, some uh, special qualities with Abraham that made him holy. It's that God declared him holy. He was set apart by God. And Paul says that can't be forgotten. He uses a second metaphor here. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Again, the root is the source here, the promises to the patriarchs. And if that is holy, if that is, is undefiled, if that is still pure, if those promises are still true, we could expect that it will eventually produce fruit that is holy, branches that are holy. Now you might be thinking, wait a second, I, I thought that the promises made to Abraham were now given to us. I mean, I thought we are the children of Abraham. I thought we are the eventual fruit of Abraham. Well, if that's what you're thinking, that's probably why Paul adds the next few verses. And it takes us to a second key attitude in light of God's plan for using the Gentiles to save the nation of Israel. And a second feature, really, in God's overall plan of redemption, that is the humility we ought to have through the purpose of our connection. We ought to understand the purpose of why we are here, and it ought to give us humility. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, now sharing in the nourishing root of the olive tree, 
Do not be arrogant against the branches. That is the ones who were broken off. If you are, remember that it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. It's not you that supports the root, but the root supports you. It's really amazing. Paul is obviously taking that root and branch metaphor from verse 16 and and sort of expanding it. And he's connecting this image of the olive tree, which was so often used in Israel's history in their Old Testament scripture as a reference to God's people. And, and really, that is the way it's being used here. God's people in the broadest sense. The root, as we said, being Israel's forefathers, the promises made to them, and the tree being the combined people of God that flow from it. Everyone who has faith like Abraham is a part of this tree. And Paul knows that some of the branches have been broken off from that tree. And we Gentiles have been grafted into that tree, even though it's a wild, even though we are from a wild olive tree. He says we've been grafted in among the others, speaking there about some of the remnant who are in the tree. But in contrast to us, and in contrast to all the remnant, he says some have been broken off. Now, I'm not a horticulturalist. My wife will tell you. Uh, she handles the garden and does a great job at it. But my understanding is that this is not normally the way things would be done. You don't normally take wild olive branches and graft them into a domesticated olive tree. Because wild olive branches don't bear fruit. You wouldn't do that. It doesn't make sense to to, to necessarily do that. Grafting them into even a domesticated tree wouldn't cause them to bear fruit. You might take a branch from a domesticated tree and graft it onto a wild olive stalk and the fruit would come, but you wouldn't normally do it the other way around. But some people did, sometimes. There are historical records of people in the ancient Near East grafting wild olive branches onto domesticated trees. Non-fruit-bearing branches. And the reason they did it is to reinvigorate the tree. They would only do it for a tree that has ceased bearing fruit. And somehow, some way, maybe the sap inside of that wild olive branch or whatever it would be, would bring that tree back to life and it would start bearing fruit again. And that's probably Paul's idea behind this image. Because it is us who are being used to reinvigorate Israel in their love for God. We haven't necessarily replaced the old branches. We've been grafted in, Paul says, among the others. That is, among the the believing Jews who are in the church alongside of them. But we're unnatural. We're the wild olive tree can't, of course, press the metaphor too far. Paul's not trying to suggest that we are somehow excused from being fruitful or any of those other things, but he's trying to help us to understand what is God's purpose in the tree? What is his purpose in the tree? It has a root, and from that root, it's growing out, and its purpose is demonstrated in the purpose of the root. 
And what is the purpose of the root? It's not you, he says. You aren't, you aren't supporting the root. The root is supporting you. God is using wild olive branches to reinvigorate, you might say, the natural branches, to bring them back to fruitfulness. Down in verse 24, Paul will describe us as Gentiles as cut from what is by nature this wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into this cultivated olive tree. And all of this, he said, should cause you to be tremendously humbled. Not arrogant, not boastful. Why? Because you aren't supporting the root, supporting, the root is supporting you. What does that mean? It means that we are not the reason behind this tree. We're not the reason that this tree exists. There is a support. There is, we might say, an initial cause behind all of this, and it's not you. Sorry to deflate you and uh, ruin your celebrations. But God didn't save you ultimately for you. He saved you for His glory. For the purpose He's working out for His own namesake. The foundation behind this whole thing is not you. The foundation, the root, is God's promises made to Israel through the patriarchs. And Paul said, back in chapter 9, verse 5, to Israel belong those patriarchs. To Israel belong the patriarchs. We participate in this tree but not by way of replacement. We are wild olive branches. They are the natural branches. We participate in that simply as a part of stirring them up to jealousy. So this whole plan, it's not subtraction. It's not God just breaking people off. It's not substitution. It is addition. It's not God setting aside His plan for Israel, but it's God grafting us into the overall plan for His ultimate purposes. We have been added to the plan of God that was already in place for Israel. We've been grafted in. We're not the main purpose of the plan. We're not the purpose of the root. The root presents the purpose for you. The root establishes the purpose for you. And the purpose is to stir Israel to jealousy. Paul says that ought to keep you from being arrogant. It ought to generate a tremendous amount of humility within you. So we could summarize this whole metaphor here by saying we would not exist if we were not planted within an overall plan of God for Israel. That's what Paul's saying. We would not exist in this tree if we were not planted there in an overall plan of God for Israel. That leads very naturally to a third attitude. It ought to be married together with the joy and the humility that Paul's already talked about. But as we think about God's plan using the Gentiles to save the nation of Israel. It ought to take us to another feature of this and another attitude, and that is fear 
as the condition of our continuation. Fear as the condition of our continuation. Paul presents a sort of hypothetical opponent who responds to all this in verse 19. Then you'll say, the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is the purpose, I mean, this is the person who wants to focus just simply on the breaking off of Israel. They want to focus on the termination of God's plan for them. And the assumption on the part of this hypothetical opponent is that there is a subtraction that has taken place, or at least a substitution that has taken place. They were broken off so that I might be grafted in. The implication being that God is done. He's done away with Israel because he's doing a new work through the Gentiles. And Paul doesn't deny that they've been broken off. He doesn't deny that there is hardened Israel out there, but he wants to challenge the assumption of why they were broken off. He wants to challenge this implicit assumption that's really behind the thinking of this question. He says, look, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, and you stand fast through your faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. Let me ask you a question. How are you going to continue in God's kindness? How are you going to continue in God's kindness? You say, I I, I don't know. It's all in the mind of God. That's right. It's all in the mind of God. The only way you will continue in the kindness of God, the only way you will continue to stand by faith, is if God continues to give you His kindness. You hear what he's saying? It all boils down. And we might ask the question this way. We might say, why are you still standing in God's favor? From a human perspective, you might say, well, it's because I believe. But from the divine perspective, it is because of God's kindness. Yes, Israel has been broken off. Yes, Israel is unbelieving, but why? Why is Israel unbelieving? Because they haven't received this favor. They haven't received this kindness. In other words, it is by His choice, by His doing, that they're not in Christ Jesus. It is because they have been hardened by Him. And why is it that you are in God's favor? It is by His choice. By His favor. And so Paul says, take note then of this kindness and severity. Severity toward them, but kindness toward you. It's not that God is unkind to anyone. God's kindness, God's goodness is over all of His creation, but He's talking about an electing kindness here. A special favor. And so we can't become proud. In fact, Paul says our proper stance ought to be one of fear. You must fear. Fear what? 
Fear lest that kindness of God no longer keep you. Now you might be thinking, whoa, whoa I thought that was a done deal. I mean, once saved, always saved, right? I thought this was all sort of a settled thing. Well, it's true. Scripture teaches the eternal security in our salvation, but it's always conditional. It's always conditional. Conditional on your perseverance. And your perseverance is always dependent on God's kindness. I know it doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but the condition of our continuation in God's favor is perseverance. Or another way to say it is that you have no reason to feel secure in your standing before God if you do not persevere. No reason. Now that perseverance comes from God. Jude 24 says, He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. But I hope you know that you have to constantly depend on Him for that. You have to constantly depend on God for the grace to persevere. And so Paul is warning you, never forget that you stand under the sustaining grace of God. Never forget that it is God's grace that makes you, are, uh, makes you what you are. Develop a holy fear of God that He would ever withdraw this grace from you. I hope that is a regular part of your life. It's a regular part of my life. Just bowing before the Lord as you grow more and more and see the wickedness of your heart, you see your frailties, you see your weaknesses. seems like the further we go in life, the more bald-faced we have to see them. And the more painful it is to see that wretchedness in our life. And the more deep is our understanding of why God shouldn't keep us. And we're driven, once again, to the throne of grace to plead for His mercy to do just that. To sustain us, to keep us. William Shedd writes, quote, The children of God are warned against apostasy as one of the means of preventing it. The holy and filial fear of falling, say that one three times fast, the holy and filial fear of falling is one of the means of not falling. He who has no such fear because he presumes upon his election will fall. End quote. Look, if you don't have this kind of fear, mark it down. You're headed for a fall. If you don't have this kind of fear... If it's not generated inside of you as you see the disappointments in your own self, in your own life, in your own flesh, mark it down. You're headed for a fall. The Scripture is full of these kinds of warnings. And God uses them as one of the means of generating within us humility. As one of the means of really increasing our faith more and more. 
as we are cast upon His grace day after day, as we face our weaknesses, we're brought face to face with our unworthiness. And it gives us all the more understanding of why God ought to cast us aside. That fear ought to always be present then. It ought to be constantly crying out while it is constantly answered by faith. Faith in the sufficient work of Christ. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, look, don't forget. The whole reason that you're here is the kindness of God. The whole reason you responded is the kindness of God. And the reason they do not, the reason Israel has not, is because they're not under this kindness at this moment. And all that stands in the counsel of God's will. But that sets us up really for the fourth key attitude in light of God's plan for using the Gentiles to save the nation of Israel. And a fourth feature, we might say, of God's overall plan of redemption. And it is hope in the ultimate conversion of Israel. Hope in the ultimate conversion of Israel. I mean, if this is really all based on sovereign election, the kindness of God, and if sovereign election is really all about bringing God glory, then we would have no problem in understanding how magnificently glorified God will be if He brings about this wholesale restoration to Israel. Believe that God is able to do exactly what He said He would do in the Old Testament. Paul says, and even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Why? For God has the power to graft them in again. Why would they not continue in their unbelief? Well, it would be because of God's kindness. God has the power to do it. See, these are people, this is, this, he's talking about Israel that's been broken off. It, you know, I, I, I have such a, the hard, a hard time with uh, those who read this as an individualistic thing. I have such a hard time understanding what all this breaking off, breaking off is all about. I can understand grafting in, if you're talking about individual Jews who were previously unconverted and unredeemed and and unforgiven being grafted into God's plan of salvation. But it doesn't make sense, all this language of breaking off, unless you're talking about corporate Israel. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the Israel that's hardened, not the elect Israel. The Israel that is currently rejecting God. The Israel that is currently not accepting of Christ. Paul says that God is able. He's able to graft them back in again. They were formally under this covenant blessing. They were formally uh, the, the visible representation, at least, of God's covenant people on the face of the earth. They had the covenant sign through circumcision, but now they've been broken off. And Paul's preparing us for an anticipation that they'll be grafted in again. 
And this, Paul says, is natural. Because it is their olive tree to begin with. He says, look, if you who were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, grafted contrary to nature into this cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? It's their tree. You're a part of it by God's grace. But your God's plan in saving you is part of a much bigger plan. God's plan even in saving Israel is part of a much bigger plan. All of it really is for His glory. All of it is to demonstrate the woeful ineptitude of man in His ability. And all of it is to demonstrate the absolute necessity of God's electing love. But every bit of it drives us to that same place. That awe and wonder that we've been included to begin with. We should feel that we have no place here. We should feel constantly that we, strangers to the covenants of promise, excluded from the life of God, outside of fellowship with Him and rebels against His will, we have no place in this tree were it not for the kindness of God. God never made such kinds of promises to us, but He included us. Because of His kindness. And so what should our attitude be? Our attitude should be joy. Our attitude should be hope. Our attitude should be humility. Our attitude should be fear. should be all those things. With glory to the Lord. And waiting and longing for the day of Israel's restoration. Because what does it mean? Life from the dead. Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, these are very deep truths. They take us, as it were, to the perch of heaven, looking down over the span of all of redemptive history. And we see the full scope of how you are working and bringing about your plan. We, we don't pretend to know the secret counsels of the Lord. Those belong to you. But we look at ourselves, we sense our unworthiness. We confess to you again that we are only here by your kindness. And even more so, we see it today. We see how truly we don't deserve to be here. But Lord, thank you. Thank you for constructing such a plan, such a magnificent act of grace that would not only fulfill your promises for Israel, but would include us, that would give us a role and a place. I pray that we would be like Paul then. We would magnify our ministry. We would speak of your blessing in our life. We would tell of your goodness, not just to the nations, but to Israel. If we could fulfill what you desire for us, that is our desire. Provoke them, Lord. And bring about the final day of our resurrection of your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.